Welcome to The Sword and the Trow, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. We are very thankful to have Dr. Tom Nettles in the studio with us today. Dr. Nettles is a dear friend. He is a teacher of God's Word for many, many years at many, many different institutions. Presently, his title is Senior Professor of Historical Theology and Church History at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I don't know Some, how complicated it gets. Something like that. <laughs> anyway, it's something like that. Right yeah. So we're very grateful to have you here today, Dr. Nettles. And since you're here, uh, we thought it'd be good to just kind of walk through a historical theology of controversy. Mm-hmm. You have written a, a number of books, and you are apt in especially uh, conflict in Baptist life, but it might go broader than that. But there are things that we can learn from those who've gone before us, how controversy has arisen in the church, and then what they did about it. So yeah. you want to sketch out some details for us to get us yeah, started? You know, we, we thought about having you here. We thought, Tom Nettles, controversy. Yeah. It seems to fit, so... <laughs> It's like clue. <laughs> yeah, but no, I don't know anybody who has assessed controversy in Baptist life better than you have. You've written on it in different volumes. Uh, you've thought about it. You've drawn out uh, helpful applications for the church today. So that's just what we want to do in this conversation. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's been plenty of controversies in, in Baptist life over a variety of issues, and that's just a part of the way the whole the church has developed. Without controversies, then we would not have clarified uh, so many issues. We think of the Arian controversy and how that helps clarify right. what we really need to affirm about the deity of Christ and the Nestorian controversy, what we need to affirm about the singularity of the person of Christ, the Pelagian-Augustinian controversy, which begins to drive us toward a, a, a true understanding of what grace is and how grace must be effectual and intervene in sinners. And so the controversy has helped us define with clarity. Paul knew that there would be controversy. He told the Corinthians mm-hmm. that it didn't surprise him there were divisions among them because without those, we wouldn't actually know who was, uh, mm-hmm. who was faithful. Yeah. And we Since don't you're like already it. spooling this thing out, this has been quite wonderful already. Paul, Arian, Nestorian, Pelagian, Augustinian, just keep walking us through all the way. Give me a, take me through the uh, next fifteen hundred years. Rhymes. Come on, let's take, hear it. take, take me through the next fifteen hundred years. <laughs> Got shock. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that was that one didn't turn out well for Gottschalk. It's uh, <laughs> he was the true Augustinian. It shows that there can be decline and controversy yeah. can uh, it re- revolve around. Of uh, someone who rediscovers a a truth, right, you're going to have that, to elaborate that because uh, I, I took you from medieval history. Yes, and you that made was me a, read. Yeah, Obelinsky I have no idea what you're talking Taylor. about. What, who, what? Godstrock? Hinkmar, Hinkmar of rhymes and Gottschalk. Gottschalk oh, was a, a a monk who was a medieval theologian, 10th century, who um, had rediscovered. He 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 believed that the church had been falling away from its Augustinian uh, synthesis. And it had begun to adopt Pelagian thought or semi-Pelagian thought that its views on grace were not what had been actually developed during the Augustinian period and, and were immediately after Augustine were received by the church as being the a true theology. And at the Council of Orange, uh, Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism was, was condemned but it did not come up with a positive affirmation. Senate of Orange was around 529. It didn't come up with a positive affirmation of, of unconditional election and irresistible grace. It just denied 
semi-Pelagianism and affirm the need of grace for everything. And so even though it was, a, it was a strong affirmation of the need of grace, it didn't take certain stances that needed to be taken. And so after the, after the Council of Orange, the church continued to move more and more towards semi-Pelagianism. Gottschalk went back to thoroughgoing Augustinianism. He was opposed by bishops of the day. He was imprisoned. Uh, a, anyway, if, eventually he, he died um, maintaining his Augustinian position. But at that time, he was uh, the one that was considered uh, heretical in his views. So orthodoxy, uh, given enough decline in theology, can be considered heretical by uh, a subsequent generation. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, then what continued uh, the, the semi-Pelagian uh, sacramentalism of Roman Catholicism that it, it then comes uh, to its, um, its mature development just before the Reformation and enter Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, uh, recapturing the Augustinian uh, synthesis. The, the, the Reformation basically was a rediscovery of Augustinianism then expanded into implications that Augustine did not see clearly. But you have the doctrine of justification by faith on the basis of imputed righteousness that becomes a, a pillar of the Reformation. Uh, Augustine gets close a couple of times, but still he sees a transformational aspect to grace that makes us just, which opens up then for the development of the sacramental system. So Augustinianism, as it originally Uh, was stated on efficacious grace, the perseverance of the saints, and all of those kinds of things was was clear, was recovered. But he he leaves room open for the necessity of of becoming just uh, in a purgatorial uh, standpoint. Uh, The Reformation rejected the doctrine of purgatory as, as unbiblical, as counter to the completed work of Christ. Their exposition of justification by faith sort of settled uh, that issue, the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so there's a, there's a recovery uh, after uh, 800 years of decline of a, a, a theological position that, that supports the entire corpus of Scripture in a, much, uh, in a much more sound way than medieval Roman Catholicism. And then out did. of that, <clears throat> Baptists emerged. That's right. And out of that Reformation, uh, Baptist developed. One of the issues, of course, during the Reformation was ecclesiology, how if you have justification by faith and then you try to have a disciplined uh, church, how does that look? How do you form the church? And, and out of the controversy of the Reformation in the 16th century, we come to the 17th century and Baptist life emerges, uh, adopting all the confessional articles that were central to the Reformation, uh, uh, one group was more Armenian than the other. The General Baptists, they remained the smallest group. The Particular Baptists adopted the, the in, entire spectrum of Calvinistic uh, confessionalism, uh, Westminster Confession, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession of Faith. Uh, but they, they said the implications were that if it, you have a, have a pure church, then you cannot introduce unregenerate people into the church. And if you baptize infants, then you're introducing people who are at that point unregenerate, and you wait for the time when God might or might not uh, convert them. So Baptists wanted to have a front door where there were regenerate people by profession of faith that came in. If they proved not to be regenerate, then discipline became 
one of the key theological and ecclesiological points of, of Baptist life. Uh, and so discipline made sense if you have believer's baptism. Mm-hmm. Discipline didn't really make sense if you had infant baptism. And so the, the separatists who tried to have discipline but main, maintaining infant baptism, it was a rather clumsy combination, uh, and eventually separatism sort of di- died out. It's almost like they had the seeds of apostasy within their own system. Exactly. They yeah. had to continually fight it. against it. You can see the connection of like a little bit of conflict, given that the Reformation itself was conflict. Right, and then you, you come out of that in the Puritan Puritanism in that sense as mm-hmm. a conflict of that Reformation world. Exactly, and then yep. since we're the and sons Baptists of the Puritans, we're of then the, we're we're, we're like we're like great grandsons of conflict. <laughs> so that when people joke about Baptists are always fighting, there might be some uh, yeah. there might be some historical logic to that. What do you think are the main would you like Puritan era Baptistic slash evangelical controversies. He kind of brought us all the way through. Why don't you bring us all the way up to? Well, the ma- major ones that relate to Baptist life, um, there's, there's landmarkism in Southern Baptist life. That that's over an ecclesiological issue that is sort of so rarefied that I think it wouldn't be fruitful to, to get into it. But uh, bigger issues that have uh, been important are are basically conflicts over the inspiration of Scripture. Mm. Over the and we've already talked about the inerrancy controversy. This has a long, long history as to how these things develop. Uh, the first one that becomes prominent in Baptist life is the toy controversy at, nope. at Southern Seminary. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was before the downgrade. The downgrade okay. Yeah, before the downgrade controversy. Uh, C.H. Toy was a, a, a brilliant student, a Southern Baptist from, from Virginia. He studied in Germany. When he came back from Germany, he had rejected all of the higher critical stuff that was connected with, with his German studies. He even his, his, uh, he taught at Furman for a while. His inaugural address at Furman was one in which he really entered into the uh, to controversy with the Tübingen School, showing why it's something that could not be affirmed. And he, he actually said that uh, we, we affirm that the Bible is, once we know the true meaning of a text, the Bible in every iota of its substance is infallible truth. This is, mm. this is what he says in that uh, particular presentation. And then another one that he presented at Southern Seminary. But gradually the leaven of that teaching began to come in. He began to read more things. The uh, Darwin's evolutionary uh, theory mm. began to weigh upon him. He, he, he put that alongside the early chapters of Genesis uh, he tried to make them fit. He, fig- he, he finally concluded they could not fit, and so he began to raise the early chapters of Genesis to a level of spiritual truth but not historical truth. That fit in with his historical critical studies that he had done in Germany. So he readopts that, and he mm. began to teach that in the, uh, in the seminary at Southern. Uh, when complaints came from students, Boyce and Broadus uh, talked with Toy. They tried to get him to teach from the standpoint he had taught from earlier, thinking that if he just went back through the text as if it were all true historically, this would sort of rescue him, what they thought might be a temporary lapse back mm-hmm. into this. Students were fascinated with what he had taught before. They heard about it. They began to ask questions. And so, again, he went back in to say, well, this is what I used to teach and so forth. Uh, it became a, a matter of public knowledge through complaints. There was a uh, uh, actually, a female editor who wrote editorials in a in a paper. I think it was in o- Ohio. It was actually T. T. Eaton's sister, Josephine Eaton, uh, who uh, who wrote these. And she began to talk about how Colgate Divinity School and a school in Louisville, Kentucky, were having real troubles because they had teachers that thought they knew more about the Old Testament than Jesus did. Mm. 
And, mm. and so she wow. begins to sort of lay it back, and this it becomes public. Uh, it's known that Toy is the one teaching that way. Uh, Broadus and Boyce said that he should submit his resignation and allow the trustees to decide whether or not his view was in accord with uh, the abstract of principles. Hey, uh, Tom, let me interrupt yeah, you just a moment. No, I, yeah, I, I, I want you to finish this, but I want to set the context a little bit about Toy. I mean, what, wasn't Broadus his pastor growing Broadus, up? Broadus uh, baptized him. Yeah. Broadus was on his ordination council. Uh, and he had Broadus submitted to go to uh, to missions. At Japan, uh, he was going to be a missionary to that's Japan. That's right. right, and the, uh, the, the Civil War interrupted uh, those plans. And, and he taught Lottie Moon, didn't he? He uh, did at, at Albemarle female, female Institute yeah, okay. and said that she was the best writer, best best writer in the South. Yeah, and so Toy <laughs> was a, a, a rising star. It, it, Broadus called him like a meteor or something like that, right? Yeah. One, one of the brightest ones or the brightest one we have available. Yeah. Fifth faculty member at Southern. That's right. So he comes on board. Everybody looks at this guy you go as to the, the superstar. Signing of the abstract of principles. You have the first four faculty members there, and the fifth name is C. H. Toy. C. H. Toy. Yeah. So I mean, this was a guy who who was one of us. Everybody loved and embraced and knew that he was going to to be uh, instrumental in furthering the good cause that right. was being labored for in the seminary. And then all of this happens with these deep fraternal relationships. Yes, absolutely. And, yeah. Horrific and. You had read to me earlier of what uh, Broadus said after yeah. Toy left, how our, our star is gone and yeah. the wonderful fellow. And when, when he was lead, leaving for New York where he was going to be the editor of a newspaper there, the, the independent literary editor, uh, Boyce raised up his, put his left arm around <laughs> Toy and raised his right hand and said, oh, Toy, I would give this right arm to be cut off if you could be where you were 10 years ago and stay there. Yeah. Uh, so this was deep, deep for them. And they didn't, just, they didn't fire him themselves. They knew that he was probably going to go, but they wanted to go through the process as much as possible to see if there was some way to salvage him. And so when he, he presented his, his views to the, uh, the trustees, the, may, I, may I read a, sure, a, the please. Article 1 of the Abstract of Principles says this, The scriptures of the Old and New Testament were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Toy contended that he believed the confession of faith, that that, that, that left room for him. Uh, and so <clears throat> he says at the beginning of his resignation letter, he said, it having lately become apparent to me that my views of inspiration differ considerably from those of the body of my brethren, I ask leave to lay my opinions on that subject before you and submit them to your judgment. And then at one point he says, uh, when discrepancies and inaccuracies occur in the historical narrative, that does not even invalidate the documents as historical records, much less does it affect them as expressions of religious truth. I am slow to admit discrepancies or inaccuracies, but if they show themselves, I refer them to the human conditions of the writer, believing that his merely intellectual status, the mere amount of information possessed by him, does not affect his spiritual truth. So he had adopted the idea of spiritual truth being mm -hmm. separated from historical truth. And then his last statement, and now in conclusion, I wish to say distinctly and strongly that I consider the view above given to be not only lawful for me to teach as professor in the seminary, but one that will bring aid and firm standing ground to many a perplexed mind and establish the truth of God on a firm foundation. Mm -hmm. 
So he believed that it was legitimate. He believed he was in accord with the confession of faith. He believed he would help uh, students. Uh, he's not trying to destroy the faith of any. Uh, but Broadus had told him earlier that, said, given the assumptions that you have, if in 20 years you have not completely disregarded all supernatural in the Scripture, it will be a miracle. And then wow. he made the comment, but it seems that this has occurred much sooner than even I anticipated. Wow. So they saw those seeds within it. They were tried to rescue him. Uh, they really worked at it, uh, but it's, he, it couldn't be so done. So what do we make of that? I mean, here you know, we, we can read historical vignettes of Crawford Toy and say, oh, well, yeah, he, he was a heretic, and so he had to be dismissed from the seminary. But in real time, in real time, these were heart-wrenching relationships Absolutely. that no. were severed. Oh. And so let's let's think about it from the standpoint of Boyce and Broadus. I mean, they love him. They want him to be a part of what they're doing. They see him going off. Why? I mean, why take this position? Why not rather hope that he will work his way out of it? Well, yeah, they hoped for a while. And finally they submitted to the trustees. But they knew that it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And, but they wanted to give him every, every chance. But the resignation speech admits all these discrepancies and all of that. Uh, the trustees accepted his resignation. Uh, and so I think they tried to handle it with as much grace and as much um, objective detachment as possible. Uh, and honoring a friend, but in the final analysis, having to realize that the future of the seminary and its theological standing was in the balance. Mm. If, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that just had to be heart-wrenching. They must have gone to their graves with a broken heart yeah. over what happened to Toy. And, and yet, on the other hand, you think of it from Toy's perspective, you've got to admire his integrity. You know, he didn't just go along. He didn't just say, okay, you know, I'm going to quit uh, talking about these things and just hold my views privately. He did lay them out there, and he tried to be honest, and he thought he was serving the cause of God and his truth, thought he was being consistent with the abstract. I mean, he defended, mm -hmm. saying, I've not taught contrary to this. And knowing the perplexity that modern studies had presented to many people's minds, he wanted to present his view as a solution yeah. for that. You don't yeah. have to believe in the historical details. You don't have to believe in the geography. You don't even have to believe in all the... The early ethical principles, all you've got to see is it's leading us to Christ. Yeah. So what's, spiritually, what do we make of this? How would you assess this? What's going on spiritually in the toy controversy? Well, what strikes me as you've laid it out, Dr. Nettles, is that the, um, it's not nearly as cut and dry as it appears in hindsight. You know, like we look back upon these issues and we think, well, there they are, you know, choose which side you're going to be on. But at least in the Off way Off with his head. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but boy, it's it. It often seems that it's it's a lot more muddy when you're going through it. So that's one of the challenges that come when you really dig into something. Yeah, and praise not. praise God for Boyce and Broadus who recognize there's there's there are issues here that we can't ignore, though the relationship would tend to tempt us to do, to ignore them. Yeah, they believed, and they were right in their belief that. The authority of Scripture was at stake. Ultimately, the gospel's at stake, and so at great cost. 
other than toy, what's another major controversy in Baptist life that you would point to and try to call out some lessons we can learn from it? Well, one is the the downright controversy in in England where Spurgeon isolated several doctrines that he felt were being attacked, uh, and he knew they were demonstrable. Uh, the, that controversy, though it was strange because there were no names connected with it, he had promised that he would not reveal names when S.H. Booth had told him the people who were holding these uh, views that were discordant with Scripture. And also the... The Baptist Union did not have a confession of faith. And so if he made the accusations and called the names, he knew that it would end up in sort of endless lawsuits with no objective foundation to say they're outside the parameters of what the Baptist Union believes because the Baptist Union did not have a confession of faith. Mm. And, and so, what were the, what were the doctrines at stake? Uh, the deity of Christ, the doctrine of eternal punishment, the primary one, again, the inerrancy of Scripture. That's the one they talked about first. The personality of the of the Holy Spirit, uh, the idea of annihilation or secondary probation, dealing with uh, the eternal state of people, uh, just very clear doctrines set forth in, in Scripture. And when, when, he was, when he was dealing with these, would the people on the other side of the fence have all said, oh, yeah, we deny hell, oh, yeah, we deny inerrancy? Well, they did in their, in their <clears throat> preaching, yeah. And, and the man who was a, a general Baptist that was in the Baptist Union at the time, John Clifford, uh, clearly had departed from this. He had preached the idea of universalism. He had implied it in, in a couple of books and, and was very clear that the, he believed that eventually everyone would be saved. And then, of course, after the downgrade controversy was over and Spurgeon had died in 1892, Clifford continued to live, and he wrote books that were just demonstrable of, of Spurgeon's point. He, he opposed the inerrancy of Scripture in a, in a major book and uh, he opposed eternal punishment. That he uh, was uh, redefined the Trinity in in ways that were not consistent with orthodoxy. So Spurgeon was right, but uh, he thought it was better to resign the Baptist Union than to get the Baptist Union involved in these endless squabbles because there was no objective foundation by which one could be found a heretic. No confession. No confession. And so that, that shows the importance of the, the confession. With the abstract of principles, the confession was there. Uh, Toy thought he was in uh, harmony with Article One. Boyson brought us knowing the intent of Article One and the trustees knowing the intent of Article One judged he was outside the, uh, outside the, the umbrella of that article. And so the Torah controversy, in a sense, provides a historical interpretation of Article One of the Abstract of, of Principles that indeed it indeed does affirm uh, infallibility, though that word is not used. It's, it's certain, authoritative, inspired are the words mm -hmm. that are used. And so Torah tried to wind his way around those, those Tom, words. Spurgeon obviously was criticized uh, horribly uh, yes, uh, yeah. up to his death, oh, saying that he was making a tempest in a teapot, a uh, mountain out of a molehill. Uh, he was just a crank. Um, if this is true, why don't you name names? And he endured all that with, without naming names and without caving in to the convictions that he held and said, <laughs> I'm willing to be eaten by dogs for the next 50 years, but history will vindicate me. Yeah. How, Assess that. You know what? What is it in Spurgeon? You wrote a, a biography of Spurgeon. I think it's the best one that I've certainly read. Uh, the pastoral theology of Spurgeon. I highly commend that if you haven't read his book, Tom's book on that. But what do you think it was in Spurgeon 
that led him to take the stand that he did and to refuse to budge and to endure all of the acrimony that was heaped upon him. I think it was a solidification of convictions he had developed very early in his life. Uh, he detected modernism in some of the preaching that he had heard, and he had vowed as a teenager that he would never adopt the modernist understanding of, of how fast and loose you can play with Scripture. This was a very early conviction with him. He had seen the results of it in individual churches, and he was determined it would never happen in, in his church. Uh, and as he saw it coming into the Baptist Union, he thought that if he pointed it out, those people who believe those things would voluntarily leave. Mm. They didn't. Mm. He thought that the maybe S.H. Booth would come and confirm what he had said. He didn't. But as we said, in the final analysis, there wasn't any, there, there were no teeth to what could be done because they could always say, we don't have any confessional yeah. commitment to yeah. your views. These are your views. You are not the oracle. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the only confession was that uh, the baptism of believers only is the only baptism. <laughs> that, was, that was the confession. Mm-hmm. Of course, how you define believers and all, that's not, <laughs> yeah. not given. Wow. And, um, yeah, you know, what strikes me is that so you got two different scenarios there with Spurgeon and, and Toy. Spurgeon, there wasn't a confession. With Toy, there was a confession. Again, what, one of the key things I think I would draw from this is that you, you can have a confession. You can have people that actually say they're within the confession, <laughs> but they're actually not within the confession, given what they have taught. And if you look at that, that data, that's... And so sometimes it's a very long and laborious process. Because when you do have people that saying they're within the confession and they quote the confession, uh, and they conscientiously seem to believe everything that's in confession, but they're taking a position that can be demonstrated to destroy the confessional truth, what has to be done is it has to be shown that the positions they're taking really are not consistent with confessional theology. Mm-hmm. I think that's a part of what's going on now with the yeah. social justice uh, movement. We have a lot of, of good people who think that this is, this is okay, and they, they are, they're confessional. They quote the confession, uh, and uh, they publish articles that, in which they would affirm that. They preach the gospel, uh, but they have somehow uh, adopted a viewpoint that in the long run is going to be destructive. And what needs to happen is it, it, it needs, we, we need to demonstrate that that is the case. Yeah, one clear so example. So it be a sloggy process uh, to do that. One example that seems clear to me is this uh, issue of women preachers. Yes. And how the See, that's against, that's against our confession. Well, only and senior pastors is oh, what, you know, oh, okay. so that's is the that argument that's being used yeah, is that's women right. is only for men. And so it doesn't say anything about an occasional Mother's Day sermon by a woman or, you know, a woman who might uh, be on staff and preach but is not a senior pastor. And so that, so the question is, okay, what was the intent of that statement? Yeah. And that's where I think the debate needs to So again, focus. that's sort of like the toy controversy. Mm-hmm. What was the intent of that? How can right. we get back to that? And upon what scriptures is it based and what is the intent of that scripture? Right. And so you, you don't have associate pastors and um, <laughs> women children's workers in right. the New Testament, and you don't have Mother's Day that is given as an exception <laughs> in the New Testament. It's just Lord's Day worship for the person who is qualified to be the pastor teaching the people. 
And that's what it's got to got to come down to. Yeah, and the work leading up to that moment where uh, in every one of these controversies that we've considered, there's these there's these climactic historical moments where things become clear, whether that be through resignation or whether that be through a split in a denomination. Uh, but as you've demonstrated, there there's work going on before that of trying to identify, is this outside of the confession? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But trying to begin that work um, doesn't necessarily mean that you're a, you're a rabble rouser or a troubler of Israel. That kind of work of, of certain brothers all throughout the history of the church that have said, wait, wait, let, we need to look at that yeah. in, in light of God's word and scratch around a little bit to see if this is... Um, you know, that doesn't mean you're a troubler of the brethren necessarily. You could be a lover of the brethren doing this. For That's that right. Reason. We have to be like boys and broadest. We have to love those who appear to be going off. We have to give them every benefit of the doubt. We have to listen to what uh, they say. And yet we have to recognize that there are principles that can be adopted that will destroy exactly what we're trying to build mm. and it will destroy it from the inside. If, I know we're, we're, can I make one more, one more yeah, point? Yeah, one more yeah. point and we'll take a break. Yeah, how, how, this, how this worked itself out then uh, into the, the 20th century as, as uh, historical critical studies again began to, to come in and influence and you get to the 50s and someone like Clyde Francisco is teaching who's very, very conservative, but he's, he's introducing these historical critical methods into teaching. And so then one of his students is Ralph Elliott and he writes the message of Genesis, which denies the historical veracity of much of, of, of Genesis, and there's a theological message going on above it. And so uh, the trustees ask him not to republish the book. They don't dismiss him for, for theological issues. Uh, when, he, when he does not promise to republish the book, they dismiss him for insubordination. Yeah. And then in their, in their statement of, of sort of summing up the controversy, the very uh, first thing they say the particular method in using historical or critical approach is recognized as a valid approach to Old Testament studies. <laughs> but see, that was the, exactly the problem. That's exactly what uh, Eliot was using. And then once that is affirmed again, you move another decade into the development of the Broadman commentary, which it just becomes bold in its, in its interpretive principle from the historical critical method and even the introductory articles assault verbal inspiration and inerrancy and in saying they're impossible to hold because of all the discrepancies and the, and the historical issues and the ethical problems that exist if you take verbal inspiration. And so it's just an, an assault upon what had been affirmed back after the toy controversy. Yeah. Mm. So, so, so that method, embedded within that method, was the necessity of calling into question in, inerrancy. Yeah. Mm. So if you adopt a method of analyzing something that has embedded within it those things that are completely incompatible with what you're trying to affirm, that's a problem. So and that's what, go ahead. So analytical tools are not neutral. That's right. The analytical tools are not neutral. And and we, we, we have to work carefully, but we have to work faithfully to demonstrate that something like uh, critical race theory is not just an analytical tool, yeah. uh, that it brings in naturalistic assumptions that cannot be reconciled with divine revelation. Let's talk more about this. I want to invite you to come to the Southeast Founders Conference here in Cape Coral, Florida, December 5th through 7th. 
2019. Uh, this conference is going to be on the law and the gospel. Tom Nettles, who is a senior professor of historical theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, will be joining Jared Longshore and me as we address this vitally important subject. In addition to this, we're going to premiere during that conference the documentary that founders have been working on called By What Standard? So if you come and attend the conference and you'll have the opportunity to see for the first time the completed documentary that we've been working on these last several months. The cost for the conference is only $50, or that is this week until September 1st. So if you want to get in on the discounted rate, go to founders.org and register for the conference before September 1st. After September 1st, the rates will rise. Southwest Florida, December, Founders Ministries Documentary, Law and Gospel Conference. Why in the world would you not come? I hope to see you there. Welcome back to The Sword on the Trial. We've been talking uh, historical theology. We've been talking about controversy from the vantage point of historical theology with Dr. Nettles. We got to this last point about the, um, the, the, the tools, the method that you use to assess what's going on um, doctrinally is not neutral. It arises, uh, and we're seeing this with practically with critical race theory, intersectionality, that kind of thing. But, you know, related to this, and y'all can spin off on this, but I want to make this point about the, the idea of truth decay. So when we look back at historical theology, we try to think about each one. What was that, what was that controversy about? The deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the nature of grace, uh, the reality of sin, but it seems to me what's happening now is we've, we've identified this. We're saying, well, yeah, we believe all of these things, but we're just, there's this other worldview that's coming in that's actually being used to redefine all of the things that look to be in good order. So somebody yeah. could say, hey, in Baptist life, what's the deal we have? We, we understand the atonement. We believe in the inerrancy of scripture. We believe in the great commission. You can just walk right down the line. But what's happening is these new glasses are being provided uh, that are actually eroding the the undergirding, eroding the very um, essence and nature of the things that seem to be in question. Does that make sense to you as I try to spell out what I think I see is happening? Yeah, well, it makes sense to me. And and I'll, I have to admit that, that this particular issue is not as clear in my mind as inerrancy and the, and the doctrines of grace. These are exegetical issues and in issues of authority, this is much more subtle in the way I see it. But I think uh, that I, I agree with what you're saying, that there is something that is sort of one layer back from, from just uh, looking at the, uh, the exegetical issues involved and the confessional issues involved. Uh, and, and it is similar to the adoption of higher critical theories as a method of interpretation. Yeah, I, I can explain in how fact, I some of it's built upon the same worldview. Yeah, this, I saw this with Joshua Harris's recent um, denial of the faith. You know, if you look through his his Instagram posts, that has been very public and popular recently. You know, he's he is he's renouncing the faith while using terms like grace. I've received grace from mm -hmm. atheists. I've received mm -hmm. grace from Christians, and no one's got a market cornered on grace. And I'm thinking, what's what what definition are we using for the word grace? There, he says people have written hateful things to me. You know, and I don't deny that they have at all. I'm sure they have, but I'm thinking, what kind of what kind of word? What kind of meaning is there in the in the idea that you receive something hateful? He talks about repenting. You know, he says, "I'm repenting of things," but what he's repenting of is his his former teaching on marriage that it's between one man 
and one woman. And he said, I can't, I can't grieve with you Christians because I feel more alive and more hopeful than I've ever felt before. And I'm thinking, okay, what's the definition of hope? So it's interesting to me. And and to your point, I'm not (laughs) saying that I think that um, within the Southern Baptist convention, that the present issue of critical race theory and intersectionality is crystal clear and that all these things are happening, you know, at, at a, at a very sharp level, but I'm, I'm just thinking you need broadly, even evangelicalism and the degree to which it's happening in the Southern Baptist convention. I'm not prepared to, to make a case for, you know, a certain level, but there's a worldview that seems to be setting in, you know, that just seems so clear in the Joshua Harris renunciation. Um, so I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, Tom, getting back to the Elliott controversy, and you read earlier uh, this opening statement from the trustees you know, that the higher critic- criticism is a useful tool. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're not renouncing that. We're just saying that the way that Elliott has refused to do what he's been told to do is reason for dismissal. That seems to me to be a very important point about thinking of how we do embrace and utilize insights from uh, different disciplines and different ways of thinking about the Christian faith. And that, I think there's a a significant connection between that and what's going on today where we've been told and the Southern Baptist Convention has adopted in its 2019 Resolution 9 that critical race theory and intersectionality are useful analytical tools. And I'm wondering, you know, it seems to me like we may be on that same ground right now. Yeah, to, to call them analytical tools and, and that, that have been um, used by some, I think the, uh, the, the word is have been appropriated right. by some liberal scholars. It's as, as, it's as if these are, these are tools out there that are useful for a lot of different things, and you can appropriate them from one use or you can appropriate them for another. But uh, the, the fact is, is that these, uh, these tools are, are not just absolute, sort of like... Uh, um, the Platonic absolute up there, that here's a tool you can use for one thing or another. These are developed within time and space and they're developed mm-hmm. out of worldviews and they carry with them certain ways of looking at society, certain ways of looking at sin, certain ways of, of, of looking at, at truth. And if the tool itself does not affirm that there is such a thing as divinely revealed truth, if the tool itself mm-hmm. affirms that sin has to do only with uh, some class that that you're in, it doesn't have to do with moral rebellion against God. It's it's very difficult to to change a a, a worldview and a, and a and a way of analyzing society that is committed to certain presuppositions, and then come out with a with a Christian view that is built upon divine revelation. Yeah, it's going to alter it. It's going to change it. And 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 so, how long it will take actually to begin to shift our emphasis is, I, I don't know, we, we look at the first part of the 20th century and uh, the rise of the social gospel uh, movement of where uh, things that were necessary to be done in order to create uh, spaces for people that were poor in order to get rid of corruption and robber barons and these sorts of things that uh, there were social issues that needed to be dealt with, but then Christianity becomes defined solely in terms of how deeply engaged the church is purely in social gospel issues. The, the redemption was lost, the, the importance of theology and the deity of Christ, sin was, re, was redefined. And, and so the, the social gospel should be a lesson that, that 
once you begin to adopt a particular way of defining sin and defining redemption and defining reconciliation and those kinds of things, once you begin to, to do that, then you, you press aside the supernatural aspect and those, the, the biblical pattern of what it means to sin against God and be reconciled mm. to God and, be, and to be justified before him. The, the same thing happened within liberation uh, theology as it began to adopt neo-Marxism, uh, not straight-out Marxism. That didn't work. And so uh, through other hands, Marxism came, and then it was, it was absorbed into Catholic uh, theology as, as the way actually to change society, an ingenious idea actually by, by Gramsci, the Italian humanist and neo-Marxist, that we've got to use existing institutions and insert these ideas in powerful institutions. And so he saw that they could be inserted within Roman Catholic theology. And, 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 uh, and therefore, you have uh, liberation theology just taking over Roman Catholicism, especially in, in South America and in other places. And, and even the kind of commitment to the supernatural and to conversion and redemption and all that was in Roman Catholicism yeah. is, is gone. So it's a very, it's, a, it's subtle, but it is long-term devastating and destructive. Yeah. And Tom, I, I, we don't have many. There, there may be some that are beginning to, to redefine redemption today. Mm -hmm. But you do have a man like Anthony Bradley at King's College who has said that evangelicals have never had the gospel because right. of his buying into critical race theory and the way he views things now. And you do have people saying, we're not sure that George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and James Boyce were even Christians yeah. because of their uh, approach to slavery uh, right. here in mm -hmm. this nation. And, and so is there a connection there between thinking about redemption? Yes. Yep. Yeah, there is. Uh, because uh, one particular viewpoint has become the most important, has become the, the driving idea of what, of what truth is. Right. Uh, and, this, this is a, a, a subtle way in which I think Marxism redefines things by the process of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, the developing the final uh, synthesis. And so Marx says the final synthesis is, uh, is material, mm -hmm. uh, dialectical materialism. Coming, yeah. And so the good will be when everyone is in ownership of everything. You've got to get rid of all classes. And of course, that never, that never worked. Uh, well, neo-Marxism says you don't do it in terms of pure materialism. You don't throw that away. You, you keep that mm -hmm. in. That becomes a part of the process of trying to create uh, material e equality. But basically, it's, it's more like the Hegelian understanding of ideals. Uh, these ideals have got to be synthesized. And so, so honor and acceptability and virtue and all that. And so when the final synthesis comes, there's going... Uh, to be this, this combination of all the, the virtues that we uh, embrace, and there are certain things within society that do not allow those virtues to come. And so the, the final synthesis of evil became slavery, white, mm. uh, white European uh, colonization that developed slavery. So anything that has to do with, with, with slavery is ipso facto evil. Mm. And everything becomes defined from that. And so you cannot <clears throat> bring up the scriptural idea that Paul told slaves to consider their masters as beloved and as brothers yeah. and to count their 
ability to work for them to make them succeed a good thing. You just you can't do that with Scripture if you've come to the final uh, synthesis as uh, slaveholding is the final evil, and from that come all other evils. Now, I'm not defending slaveholding right, right, here, and, right. I, and I think That's there are clear. many principles within Scripture that would get rid of that as 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 a uh, as as giving the the due honor to all people is made in the image of God. But these kinds of accommodations that we have in Scripture are not necessarily seen as evil in their context, though we hope they would be overcome, like capital mm-hmm. punishment. Of uh, There was no capital punishment in an, un, in an unfallen world. There is capital punishment in a fallen world. There was no divorce in an unfallen world. There is divorce in a fallen world. And though these things, uh, we hope we can overcome them, there are accommodations made to the fallen world. And slavery was one of those things. And so if we develop, if we use this, this kind of neo-Marxist uh, reduction of, of the final synthesis of evil and the final synthesis of good, then you are, you're, you're throwing away the ability to negotiate yourself within, within scriptural exegesis yeah. and to continue to find good as justification. Yeah. I'm, I'm forgiven of my sins. That's a better good than anything I could ever achieve on, on earth. I'm brothers with every person who is saved. It doesn't matter what class I'm in, what, what gender I'm in. We're all united uh, in Christ. That is our, that is our unity. So you can, you can have people that are affirming that, and yet at the same time they're talking about tribalism and they're talking about dominant tribes and, and all of that, blending that into their analysis. And it seems that that is an, that is an internal uh, aspect of their thinking that if they don't allow Scripture to overcome that, then that will overcome Scripture. Right, right. Uh, and, and so I think the job that, that we have and <clears throat> is to make sure that we can isolate in an objective sense the particular ways in which these theories that are uh, becoming more prominent and we think they can be used to establish real justice, the ways in which these theories actually uh, change and threaten received biblical Christian theology. What does it do for justification? What does it do for uh, reconciliation? Uh, What does it do for the true knowledge of God that we have through divine revelation? We can understand ourselves and we can understand others and we can understand God and we can understand God's will for our life and I can understand my sin from scripture. It's, it's, It's not subject to where I was born and what skin I've been in and what class I've been in. There's a there's a transcendent and, and pervasive power of Scripture to instruct me, no matter what it was. That was right. as we, we began. That's, that's what it was with me being born in Brandon, Mississippi during the 60s. It was, it was Scripture. It was, it was the, uh, the, the power of Scripture in informing me about this that let me see the, the error yeah. of it. You know, one of the challenges. Sorry. With, because, uh, no, it's oh, brilliant. It's very right. helpful. One of the challenges <clears throat> with the idea of, uh, of a tool um, with critical race theory and intersectionality being a tool and then trying to sh- demonstrate how it is um, not in step with Scripture, antithetical to Scripture. I'm thinking of Richard Delgado's book that I read. He's not a Christian, but he's a leading critical theorist, and he very clearly says that uh, critical race theory is built upon radical feminism and postmodernism. He cites Derrida, he cites Gramsci, and something. A tool, you know, the question is, well, whose hand is it in? Who used it? And it's postmodernism's tool, in, in my understanding. 
So, so the hand, the tool was made by postmodernists um, in order to accomplish a just society, in order to accomplish uh, equality. And as I, you know, we were talking about this earlier, and I mm-hmm. said, in many ways, I think it's commendable. That might sound so weird to people. I think it's commendable. If you're going to be a postmodernist, um, well, okay, better than us all just killing each other, anarchy. Let's come up with work a for way. Justice. Yeah. Let's come up a way to work for justice. And so that's where I think Christians keep looking at it and going, "Well, we care about justice too, and we care about the oppressed." And and you were like, "Yes, but this is the this is a tool that postmoderns created, and by using the tool, you're, you're it's in their hand, you know." And that's what's making the job so hard because you just sound unloving. You're like, "Well, you're not for justice. You're not for the oppressed. Well, of course we are. You're not for equality. Of course we are." But it's by what standard? The postmoderns don't have the same standard as the Christian worldview. So I think that's the challenge when you say the task before us to just show it's. I keep I keep thinking what we need to do. One, one approach to this is not show just how intersectionality and critical race theory themselves are are in error with Scripture, but it's, we've got to show what they're rooted in and how that's antithetical yeah. to Scripture. I think that's going to illuminate the picture for people. Yeah, let me read to you what uh, Al Mohler has said about this. He said about critical race theory and intersectionality. They emerged as analytical tools, but they were never merely analytical tools. And in the common discourse of the United States, and especially in public uh, argument and in higher education, both critical race theory and intersectionality are far more than analytical tools. And then Michael Haken, who's a history professor, your colleague at Southern Seminary, grew up as a Marxist. I mean, was a card-carrying Marxist, says the cultural precondition of Marxism, and this is also true of cultural Marxism, is atheism. The idea that some sort of reproachment can be made with this ideological worldview and its, and its analytical tools used without fear of pollution is extremely naive. I mean, that's, there's wisdom in both of those statements, that wisdom that I think we are slow to embrace right now uh, in the evangelical world and especially the SBC. Yeah, and I think that while we try to work to show the precise way in, in which, uh, from which the, the, the worldview from which these things have arisen and the precise way then in which they will have effect on specific Christian theology, and it has effect on all different kinds of disciplines. There are people who are not even Christians that are upset about all this theory because of right. what it does to their understanding of research and finding objective truth and, and, that, and those sorts of things. And so it has its own impact within various places. So one of the things I think we need to be careful of is, is not too quickly condemn people as having sold their soul to critical race theory. I know like um, after, there was, uh, after the, the MLK conference, there's a, a lot of wondering if, if the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is sort of embracing this as a modus operandi. And they published a, uh, a piece on critical race theory by, was it Walker? Walker. And Andrew, Andrew Walker. Andrew Walker, which I think is, is, is very good. He takes some very, very strong stances. And so when that happens, we need to say, okay, we're, we're, we're not going to doubt them. We're not going to connive and say, okay, well, that's just, that's a, just a reaction. We need to accept that as, as a very good statement. And so we know they're not, they're not working on that basis. And the, and when there was some confusion about the exact answer, how, how the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission was related to the Revoice uh, Conference, and there was insecurity about uh, how that was presented, then they, they came out with a statement on the Revoice Conference, again, Andrew Walker. And mm-hmm. uh, in my reading of it, it's very good. He gets to the heart of the issue. He shows that he thinks it's incompatible with a Christian actually repenting not only of 
external sin, but of the internal corruptions and propensities that lead uh, to that sin. And so uh, I think that we need to, while we are working on, on, on trying to locate the roots and trying to find out precisely, we also need to give people the benefit of the doubt when they make certain affirmations. Now, if we find out, like in this, like we've adopted this, this uh, resolution, resolution. So it shows that critical race theory is important to some people. Uh, in fact, since the resolution was actually a change from its original uh, production to say the, the opposite thing from what it was being mm -hmm. said, this says that this is, this is important. And so it, it makes it uh, sort of doubly ob obligatory for us to analyze this and to uh, be clear that uh, these ideas will have a destructive effect and hope that these kinds of things will make people think, will bring some away from it, will allow those who are in charge in an authority actually to, to look and see if this contradicts the confession. And if there are changes that need to be made, then eventually they'll have to, they'll have to be made. Yeah. And one of the challenges I see that, that frustrates me, quite honestly, in this whole controversy is that it seems like some people are equivocating and they refuse to speak plainly and answer direct mm. questions about uh, issues related to this. Uh, I mean, for example, the ERLC, at the time Andrew Walker wrote that article about Revoice, had a teaching fellow who's advocating Revoice, endorsing it, and saying this is a good thing. So I'm, how, how can you have both? You know, what's, which is it? Uh, the president of the ERLC has asked a direct question about women preaching, and he just won't answer it. I mean, I, it's, it's, I don't understand that. And if we're going to get clarity, if we're going to move forward, we're going to have to have some plain speakers who are willing to say, I believe this, not that. And I don't know what's at play that prevents people from being that way. I think, I think that given the, uh, the right provocation, I think those things can be answered. I'm not, I'm personally, yeah. I'm not, not willing to say they're, you know, they're fooling us or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I mean, I, <laughs> we all know these people. Right. They're involved. Yeah. We've been involved love in them in conferences yeah. and love them. And, and if we, since we're mentioning the ERLC right now, the positions they're taking on issues are so far <coughs> above what used to be Amen. done. And some of the papers they present, like on adoption and on abortion and on family, they are just really wonderful things. And so I... I personally, I want to be, while recognizing the ambivalence, mm -hmm. I personally want to be uh, more guarded. Yeah, you know, one thing that and comes, the, yeah, I'm sorry. It's, yeah, and, and it comes out, it may be good for people to see that we, <laughs> that we're, we're, we, <laughs> sure. we, we create a, a sort I think of, a, I think, a healthy tension in the way yeah. we talk about these things ourselves. Because if, if we go off, I hope. Yeah, don't don't forget what you're saying, but no, you, because absolutely. you're wisdom, young and you wisdom, won't forget. If I don't say this, I will forget. So, uh, in fact, I already have. Uh. <laughs> no, we we need to um, we need we need to take them. We need when they say when they come out with statements on critical theory, when they come out with statements on uh, on on, on revoice, we need to accept those as they are. Right, and we need to. Uh, Make sure that we don't jump the gun. This was my thought. 
that we don't accuse people of things that they really don't believe because then we set back the effort really to get right. to the root of the matter. Right. It, does, it does become something, oh, they're just, they're just fundamentalists just trying to stir up everything. They're going to accuse everybody who doesn't dot every I and cross every T with them of, of being a heretic. I just think we need to avoid that and make sure that the work we do is uh, that was a bug. I agree too. And yeah. can, I speak, can I speak to that? Because that was a wonderful point. And, yeah. and what's 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 Go interesting ahead. to me is that I, I couldn't agree with you more. When controversy comes, you don't accuse people of what they believe or what they must believe, even with what they've said. They might genuinely just be inconsistent, or we don't know the heart. What's striking to me is at least so far in this controversy, I feel like we, quite honestly, as a ministry, have not accused anyone of that, but we have been accused. By yeah. many, many people yeah. of yeah. that. So to your point, I think, and I think maybe what's happening, what's, what's related to this issue and the, the way the controversy to this point has unfolded is people think that if you are correcting someone publicly, that that man is your enemy. Mm. That's not, that's not been the case right. throughout church history and conflict. Um, you know, Whitfield and Wesley went to, went to town with open letters and, Whitfield rejected Wesley's position on Arminianism, and yet when Whitfield was asked, you know, is John Wesley going to be in heaven? Remember what he said? You see he, he said, will you see him in heaven? He said, no. He said, because he's going to be so far up there toward the glory of Christ, and I'm going to be so far back I won't see him. And yet these men went to town, and, you know, again, I can speak to the trailer now for people that watch the, the trailer. It's like, who, who in the world spun this? To, to mean that we're calling people devils and we're calling people <laughs> terrible heretics. Are you kidding me? It's like, if you listen to what Tom said, I mean, it was there when he was preaching this wonderful sermon that was in the, in the trailer. He said, there, we're in danger of being played. We, the Christian community, my brothers and my sisters, and here's some ways that we think that is, there might be some connections, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it, when iron sharpens iron, there are some sparks and by all means we want that to be done in gentleness and, and um, with, with, with uh, love and patience and mercy and all of that. But I think, especially among the younger generation, you men haven't had so much of this. I think there's some of the stuff about it being visual, not in the written form as well, but you, you men have gone to a town, you and um guy at Southwestern, you and uh, um, atonement. Southwestern. Oh, uh, David Allen. You and David yeah. Allen. You've gone yeah. back and forth, and then I watch y'all at the Southern Baptist Convention hugging on each other and holding up your books and smiling for pictures, and I long for that again. I'm thinking if we as the Christian oh. community, as the Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist, are going to face these worldly ideologies that I think are really coming in, we've got to have a conversation. Right. Any organization that cannot discipline itself, that cannot have these conversations, that start to say, oh, no, if you ask that question to me publicly, I'm either not going to answer it because I'm afraid of what might happen, or you know, if you begin to address me publicly, I'm going to immediately call you a mean, mean person right. um, or a claim that you're accusing me of something. That's just not good for any organization. I mean, a, a McDonald's can't work like that if people aren't correcting mistakes and willing to have the conversations. I do. I think we need to have it in the spirit of gentleness and patience and clarity and all of that. But I think something's operating where, especially again, in, at this time, as soon as you say, well, we don't see eye to eye on that. It's like you think you have mm. to be enemies. No, we're brothers. This is an iron sharpening iron. This is how we, how we do it. Amen. Well said. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nels, for being with us as we've talked about these important things. I know that we'll continue to talk about it. We're going to continue to write about it. And um, thank you so much for tuning in to the sword and the trowel today. Until next time, God bless you.